Six, four, one, two. Kids 412. I am your host, Meet. Today I got my guest, Digital Dave, who's a DJ here in the Pittsburgh area. Um, Dave, how you doing today, man? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining me on this uh, Memorial Day weekend. Beautiful weekend here in Pittsburgh, finally. Uh, was snowing like two weeks ago, but hey, you know, the sun's out and it's beautiful. I know. And this is, it's funny because this weekend, it always seems to get warm in early May, and then it gets cold again this weekend, which is when the swimming pools open. And right. this year, when no pools are open, it's finally nice out. So. <laughs> it was like the complete reversal of what we're used to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Normally, like, <laughs> Mother's Day is normally, like, super warm, and Mother's Day right. this year was, like, 35 degrees. It was nuts. <laughs> it was insane. Um, for Mother's Day, my sisters and I, we took my mom down – my mom wanted to go down to West Virginia because my one sister is going to go off to college there this upcoming year. So we went down and we ended up finding this Permanis that was open because uh, it was like the only restaurant that had like an open patio. And because, um, you know, other than that, like you had to do takeout still down in West Virginia. And um, I just remember sitting there, we're all shivering. <laughs> it's like 40 degrees out, the wind's blowing. And I'm just like, God, this is awful. My sandwich was cold in probably like 30 seconds. But yeah, no, but I'm glad it's you know finally warming up and it seems like it's going to be a pretty nice summer, even if you know we can't go out to the swimming pools and do the things that we would typically do. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it's at least nice. I think that'll at least bring people's spirits up uh, a little. And we went camping, uh, not camping, hiking yesterday, should I say, okay. up at uh, McConnell's Mill, uh, up a little little north of the city. So we had mm -hmm. a nice little little trek up there. And there's there's a, you know, kind of a, uh, I don't know if you consider it like a small river or a large stream up there. And there's a mill and a, several waterfalls. And it's cool, cool little little area it was actually pretty busy too yesterday there's a lot of people out hiking so yeah um, it's nice to at least just get out of the house and be out in nice weather absolutely and I think that's <clears throat> something that's like definitely helping with this quarantine now is like I'm, I'm really thankful that you know this this COVID situation didn't hit like you know in November of this past year and like would be dragging through winter because I feel like people would be losing their minds being shut in the house so, yeah, yeah. at least you can go outside. I mean, whether you're taking a walk at a park or, you know, I guess they do have golf courses open or, or if you have a boat, um, you know, at least there's some things you can do that aren't, aren't being stuck in the house. I agree. Right. Um, so why, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself uh, to the audience and uh, just tell them a little bit about who you are and where you come from. So my name is... DJ Digital Dave, I've been doing this since 1995, which is an extremely long time. And uh, I started out DJing in a roller skating rink when I was 15 years old in high school. I eventually evolved into doing some high school dances and college parties out of that. And then when I got out of college, which was the University of Pittsburgh, I ended up starting to do a lot more nightclubs 
And throughout the 2000s, I was primarily a nightclub DJ. And around 2010, I started evolving more into uh, weddings and corporate events as well. So from 2010 on, I've been involved in that, but I've never quit doing nightclubs and bars. I still do quite a bit of that, uh, at least two to three gigs a week in that arena. And then around 2015, uh, 16, I got involved with the University of Pittsburgh's football and basketball team and the Pittsburgh Steelers. So for the past five years or so, I've also been the in-game DJ for the Steelers as well as Pitt basketball and Pitt football. So right now I'm doing the win things are actually open. I'm doing the uh, sports DJing as well as bars, uh, nightclubs, and I'm also doing um, the, um, you know, still weddings, corporate events as well. I also travel uh, around the country playing playing outside of, of Pittsburgh, and uh, I also do some radio mix shows. I don't do any any regular ones where it's like a weekly mix show because I don't really have the time for that, but I do do a lot of... Uh, guest spots, you know, that are one-offs or where I have a nationally syndicated show I play four times a year or so once a quarter. So it's not such a, uh, you know, heavy commitment because with all my other DJing work, it would be difficult to produce a weekly show. Right. Now, um, before the interview, we were touching a little bit because you're speaking the the experience that you have and, you know, that obviously a lot of knowledge to tap into. Um, so a little bit before the show, we were talking about like kind of like the evolution of the Pittsburgh scene. Uh, do you want to give a little bit of insight to the audience? Sure. Uh, so I started um, in a 95 DJing, but I was getting into clubs around 2000. And so at that time, a lot of the DJs were in their like early to mid to late 30s, kind of, you know, in that 30 to 40 year old range. And a lot of them had been DJing since the... Um, mid 80s to late 80s so uh it's kind of interesting you know to hear the stories of how uh clubs you know very early on were were really like disco oriented and in the 90s the uh industrial scene kind of became big and metropole which was in the strip district was a huge club and that was a big deal and uh, then things kind of evolved and became more mainstream and in the early 2000s, I started out, one of the first big places I played was Matrix, which was open for about 10 years in the Station Square area of the city. And uh, at the beginning, clubs were really big on drink specials, like even like nightclub nightclubs had drink specials. People would come out early for the drink specials and radio stations were big at that time. So Whammo, which had a much larger frequency at the time and had a much larger listenership because they got to a lot more uh, listeners. And B94, which was like the OG top 40 radio station in Pittsburgh and Kiss FM, all three of them would have radio broadcasts where the DJs from the, the on-air DJs from the station would be on the air and you'd have the DJ playing from the club. Sometimes it would be a live broadcast that were the actual club music was being broadcast on the air. Other times it would just be uh, a remote where the DJ was doing callbacks and saying, hey, I'm down at this club. Come on down now. The party's cracking type of thing. So that was the way to get people out to your club circa, you know, 2000, 2005. And then when radio kind of faded away and 
you know, streaming became a bigger thing and listening to mixes on SoundCloud or, you know, Mixcloud or eventually Pandora and Spotify and, and Sirius XM and radio wasn't the, the power that it once was, at least terrestrial radio was not. Um, that kind of evolved. Uh, bottle service clubs became big and that was kind of came out of Vegas and Miami and trickled down to smaller cities. And uh, Pittsburgh got big into that scene in the late 2000s and everybody wanted to open a bottle service club and be at a bottle service club. And I feel like we've now kind of evolved to where there's a good variety of clubs and you have uh, places that focus on the music more and you still have places, some places that are bottle service and have, you know, lighting, big, you know, light shows and bottle service tables. And you have some places that are more oriented toward younger college kids. And I think right now in the city, at least in my opinion, there's a good variety of places to go no matter what your likes are as far as your environment and your music taste. Oh, definitely. I mean, the evolution of the Pittsburgh bar and restaurant scene has definitely been something to like admire at a little bit. Um, I mean, yes, it has caused some gentrification in some areas. Um, and obviously there are some negative uh, side effects to gentrification, but you know, I mean, you look at Lawrenceville now, I mean, it, it's a complete night and day difference. You know, I remember when I was growing up because a lot of my family members um, are buried in the in the um, cemetery down there. And um, so I remember going down there as a kid um, with like my grandma and, you know, planting flowers at the graves and stuff. And I just remember like always like hearing about like Lawrenceville being like a bad area. It's like, you know, you don't want to you don't want to be down here like, you know, as the sun's going down type thing. And, but now it's like that, that, that whole percent is like pretty much reversed. It's like Lawrenceville is like the place to be right now. It's, you know, very popular. It's um, not just for like people my age, but it's, I feel like it's a very broad demographic that Lawrenceville draws, um, which is something that I think, um, you know, like Southside kind of lacks a little bit, you know, where the demographics strictly and pretty much 21, uh, you know, 28 years old. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to jokingly say the demographic in the South side is like 21 to 22 years old. <laughs> but yeah. but yeah. Uh, yeah, Lawrenceville is interesting. And, and the same with East Liberty and that I grew up in the Stanton Heights area, which is right between the two of them. And a lot right. of people don't know Stanton Heights because crazy enough, it's the only city neighborhood. There used to be a mom and pop, uh, like, uh, convenience store there but i don't even think that's open so i believe it's the only city neighborhood that literally does not have a business in it it has an really? elementary school a firehouse and a church and that is it so a lot of people even though it is a neighborhood in the city uh and it's just as much of a neighborhood as bloomfield or lawrenceville or east liberty or oakland a lot of people don't know stanton heights but that's where i grew up at and it's right up the hill from lawrenceville and then if you keep going, you get into East Liberty. And so it's funny because East Liberty and Lawrenceville both, when I was growing up, were just, East Liberty was even worse. The bad, bad, bad areas of Pittsburgh that you didn't right. want to go. And now both of them, like you said, you know, are, are completely and totally uh, revitalized. And there's been, you know, a big, you know, renaissance and you have in East Liberty, tons of new restaurants, and the Ace Hotel and Obviously, everything in Lawrenceville and the property values have gone up. So 
it's kind of a crazy evolution to to have seen that as a child and then to, to see everything get tore down and built back up again. Right. Now, how would you say that, you know, the, the effects that gentrification, like the, the movement of gentrification in Pittsburgh, uh, also with like the change in the club scenes and the change in pretty much the, the music industry here in Pittsburgh, how has that affected where you tried to play at uh, like early on? And even today, does that like, like which, which clubs and like which neighborhoods are you like, okay, I need to make sure that I'm at this place, uh, you know, on Friday nights because this is, you know, receiving this amount of traffic. Right. Um, I mean, well, I've always, you know, tried to go places, one, that were, you know, obviously I felt confident that they were going to do well because I had confidence in the ownership and management. And I also wanted to go places uh, where I felt like either my musical style was going to be compatible with the venue or as I grew and got older and more experienced and more and more people knew me and I knew more people, you know, I got to the point where a lot of places were like, Hey, we trust you with the, the music and we know that you're going to do the right thing. So I, I feel like for me, I've always thought about the music very specific or the, the venues I choose very specifically, not based on neighborhood, but based on the individual venue itself. And was mm -hmm. this venue a good fit for me? Um, but one interesting side note about gentrification is that um, it's interesting now in the, uh, you know, cause you talk about the gentrification of, of going maybe from like bars and nightclubs that, you know, aren't in the nicest bars or nightclubs, maybe CD to, to even nicer places. But it's kind of interesting in the strip district now, which that's been the one staple that I've, I've almost always been at some club in the strip district from like mm -hmm. the early 2000s till today. And I still am. But, uh, you know, there was a large warehouse down there that housed um, cruise bar and uh, there was yep. several spaces in there over the years. Cruise bar, I DJ at for years. But, um, you know, the space that was uh, static nightclub uh, before that was a place called Privilege, which I DJed at and managed at. Um, and uh, that building, uh, which was known, that was where Metropole was back in the day, uh, for being a big club warehouse for years is being converted into, uh, you know, high end. I don't know if it's going to be like apartments or condos, but it's being converted into residence. So uh, yeah. it's funny because gentrification now is actually kind of taking some actual nightclubs out, even that were nicer nightclubs and kind of putting in luxury condos in the, in their place. So it's, it's, it's been interesting, you know, that there have been clubs and bars that have existed because of gentrification, but now there's clubs and bars that are ceasing to exist because of gentrification. So right. uh, that's an interesting uh, a journey. And like you said, there, there are good sides and bad sides to it. It's, you know, not, not all, I don't think one or the other. Right. And, you know, it's kind of been uh, like a little, like, I don't know. It's like, it seems like they're really, there's a big push to move people back into the city. I mean, the Kaufman building um, is being turned into, you know, luxury apartments and stuff like that too. And like everybody, I just remember even when I was younger going to the Macy's store with my parents for Christmas, cause they had the, 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 the Santa shop in, in Macy's down there. And I just remember, you know, like, taking a picture underneath the, the, the Kaufman clock. Like that was like a staple, you know what I mean? It's like, 
I feel like we're losing we're losing like a little bit of the of the corporation I feel like in Pittsburgh like at least in the downtown area it seems like it's being flooded with the bars and restaurants scene a little much um and it's like you know at what point you know is we need to like figure out a balance and I think that's going to be something you have to figure out with this whole COVID-19 situation because I feel like these big companies you know like Highmark UPMC that dominate you know the Pittsburgh skyline right now are going to be looking at like do we really need these big buildings when we've seen that you know 80 something percent or whatever statistic it is can work from home do we really need this office space now so it's going to be interesting to see if these companies move out what goes in place yeah it is and i think that and this is obviously kind of a, a shift in topic here but i do completely agree with you that uh there's going to be a lot of consequences for COVID-19, but I think one of the ones that is most guaranteed is the uh, value of commercial real estate is just going to really tank because uh, you have people that are working from home. And again, like you said, these businesses, I mean, even if you buy someone their own laptop and their own office supplies and everything and send them to their house, it's so much less expensive than having commercial real estate space. And so, yeah, right. if, you can, if you can prove, uh, if you go through this and, and, you know, quote unquote experiment, you know, not, not that COVID is an experiment, but the experiment of all your employees working at home, if it actually successfully works out for some of these companies, yeah, they're going to say, hey, we're not going to renew a lease. Why should we renew a lease and, and pay all these hundreds of thousands of dollars for this space when everybody right. can can work from home. So I think, I think that's going to affect commercial real estate. Also, a lot of small businesses are, are sadly possibly going to not going to reopen. And, and right. so I definitely think, um, you know, commercial real estate, and you also are going to have people have people have already been more and more and more ordering online as time goes on. And I think this is all the more encourage people to order more and more and more online. And you might have some, some older people that maybe they didn't order online in the past because they were just not in that mindset because they grew up going to stores and right. now maybe they were forced to order online and they're like, Hey, that's not so bad. Like we're not going to go to the store anymore. So I think this is going to drive a lot of people away from physical locations. And I definitely think social uh, physical locations will still do, you know, well, once they're allowed to reopen in bars and restaurants and nightclubs and even gyms and salons. But I think a lot of the retail and office establishments in the commercial real estate world are not going to uh, do do well after this. And I think the owners of, of those properties, the owners of commercial real estate are probably going to take a hit and that they're probably going to have to, you know, do some some severe uh, price reductions in in rent for for commercial real estate space. Right. And you kind of touched on what my like the my follow up question was. Um, what do you think the impact is going to be for like yourself and your career? I mean, you know, we've been seeing, you know, very, like very evolutional, like changes being made to the music industry. I mean, you know, we have guys that like Travis Scott, you know, putting on a virtual concert on, on Fortnite and, um, you know, and then we see like virtual benefits that are now becoming popular online, um, where artists, you know, are teaming up and proceeds are going to, you know, a foundation or of some, some sort. So how, how is this 
you know, affected like basically the business approach to your DJing career? Well, right now, I mean, I've just still <laughs> been focusing on putting out content. I've been working on uh, mixtapes that I've I put out since this. I've, I've written a few articles for different blogs and magazines since this happened. Um, I've also been just catching up on organizing music. I've done quite a few uh, podcast interviews. So I've been trying to just continue to put out content uh, during this downtime mm -hmm. so that uh, I'm keeping busy and, you know, kind of still keeping in the public eye. As far as the future goes, I've been doing this a long time and I have complete confidence that the industry will come back as long as it's allowed to. Uh, right. You know, you're going to have to make it through government re regulations and have government allow people to go back to partying again and allow people to be at full capacity and allow people to, you know, be within six feet of each other. Um, you know, I, I think it would be weird if you tried to operate a nightclub and told people they could not get within six feet of someone they didn't know. But right. uh, at the same time, once things are allowed to exist by the government, I fully and wholeheartedly believe things will come back strong because, um, you know, even with, even with young people and even with younger people that are, you know, you know, kind of grew up in the, in the smartphone generation, people that grew up, you know, by the time they were in middle school, having a smartphone, even people that, that are in that generation, I still feel like they miss bars and they miss, you know, big shows and big sporting events. And there's, there's something as, as a species literally that about humans that we want to, to congregate and we want to be together. And right. so I believe that, that bars and nightclubs, uh, I mean, I've said once places open, I mean, I think you're going to have two, two, three months worth or six months worth, whenever things reopen of everybody that like missed their birthday, especially everyone that missed their 21st birthday is just right. going to go out and go crazy. Like, I think things will be really good when they come back. And I've heard stories uh, from some other states that are already starting to open up that uh, their places have been, have been crazy once they're allowed to reopen. So I have no, uh, I have complete confidence. I have no worries that things will come back strong as long as they're allowed to by the government. And that's, you know, really, right. I think what the big question mark is going to be for the industry. Right. And I mean, obviously things are going to look a little different. I mean, there's definitely going to be regulations in place, whether it's, you know, still wearing the mask when you're out in public spaces or, you know, whatever, whatever regulation they decide to put in place. Um, but it's interesting to see, to kind of sit here and, you know, as we're experiencing we're experiencing like a very, like this is a once in a lifetime type of thing. You know what I mean? Like our, you know, like I remember like hearing stories from, you know, my grandfather, my great grandfather, you know, about like the depression and, you know, living through world war one and world war two. And like, um, you know, my grandfather, he fought in the Korean war and hearing about that. And it's just like, well, this is, this is our time periods, like major event. I mean, first we had, you know, 9-11 and then, you know, the Iraq war. And, but now it's like for, for this new decade, I mean, to kick off the new decade with, you know, Australia on fire. Uh, and then, you know, then we come into this whole COVID situation. It's, it's like, wow. Okay. We we got, we, we've been getting, you know, punched in the mouth so far. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, this, this is going to be the thing that, that, you know, this generation, uh, always remembers and i i remember i mean 9 11 uh i was 
21 years old at the time. And I was about to turn 22 and I was still staying. So all my college roommates at the University of Pittsburgh in my apartment, there was four of us and they were all one year behind me. So I was a senior and they were all juniors. So I stayed in my college apartment with them one more year while it was their senior year and I was, I was already working. And mm-hmm. so uh, we were still in that apartment when, when 9-11 happened. And it's one of the, the few days in my life that, I mean, I can remember like kind of my entire day from like waking up every single thing I did that day. Um, and, and it will always stick in my memory. And, you know, we kind of thought of that as, as our, you know, I mean, I guess for, for my mom, you know, it was the JFK's assassination was, was the, the big moment. Um, and, uh, because, you know, like my parents were, were baby boomers, so they weren't around for world war two, but their big, you know, thing that they were always remember was JFK. And, and obviously, you know, my generation, I mean, I, I know you would have been around, but you'd have been very young, uh, for, for nine 11. And, um, you know, I know my son, I have an 11 year old son and I I know this is going to be something that, you know, sticks with him in his whole life. So, right. Yeah. And and also too, like when you, you touched on like with States opening back up and like, you know, birthdays and all these celebrations that we missed, you know, like my sisters, you know, just like I said, graduated uh, high school and we had their um, like graduate, if you want to call it a graduation ceremony, but it was like, um, you know, everybody had like a time slot. They only let certain amount of people into the high school at a certain time. And, everybody like you walked up on stage they took your picture you know all the principals and the staff is like all social distance and like you know it was just weird but but uh, but i'm i will say this i'm glad that they can do that because i mean my understanding is that some high schools you know weren't getting really any ceremony at all so yeah some like some i mean um like i know for colleges for example at least with duquesne um yeah there was no type of celebration at all it was literally just an online thing um and you know there's word that they're going to try and hold um like an in-person ceremony just so people you know can get that experience and don't miss out on it but you know at the same time too it's like it's something that that's something that you're going to remember though you know what i mean like it's that you're that this was different it wasn't yeah what it's always been in it and i think in some ways that's kind of cool. But then in other ways I feel bad for, you know, that they don't get the same experience. Like my sisters don't get the same experience that I got when I graduated. You know? Yeah. I, I don't. Well, yeah. I mean, I think for high school kids, I, I liked high school graduation. It, it wasn't bad. I think, uh, you know, I think most kids might, might regret and be sad more about missing prom, even, even more right. than graduation. Um, honest to God, I was having a conversation with this, with a friend about this the other day and college graduation I, I wish I could have missed it if I knew <laughs> what I mean I went to the University of Pittsburgh so I mean not only are you having like these just long long speeches which you know and honestly at that point and even still I, I really was not interested in but but then we had 14,000 like or 16,000 students and I think you have like you know I don't know three four thousand graduates like it's just like so incredibly long and i even my my own i was happy and proud to get a diploma but i I could have i could have dealt without (laughs) it being handed well i mean you you get your real diploma in the mail anyways they don't even hand you your real diploma they hand you a rolled up sheet of paper so uh, (laughs) you know it is i don't think graduation is the worst thing in the world to miss but uh prom is definitely 
you know, I, I think it would suck. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I don't, I don't have high hopes for them happening, but you know, I was supposed to DJ some proms this year uh, that I, I do every year. And uh, mm-hmm. there are some of the schools that have kind of been in contact that have not written off, not having the proms yet that if things would open back up enough in July, would still try to have the proms in July so that the kids get to have the experience still. Now, I don't, I don't have high hopes for, for that many kids being allowed to, uh, you know, be in, be in one space in July, but you know, but you know, I will give the schools this, they're, they're, they're trying, you know, and it's going to be interesting, you know, whether it's high school kids or even adults that, um, you know, put people in a space and, and, uh, you know, especially in the adult situation to give them alcohol and just say, Hey, you know, here's a bunch of alcohol, but, uh, we're going to have all these crazy rules you have to follow and you have to, you know, be six feet away from people and you can't hug people and, you know, but, but here, but get drunk and follow. I mean, you know, it's, (laughs) it's it's not going to work. I, I, I have stared down people. I've sat, stood next to people in, in bars with police officers and the police officer said, if you walk out that door right now, you're good. Go leave. Walk down the street. If you right. sit here and argue with me, I am going to arrest you. And without fail, 10 out of 10 times, the person <laughs> always, not 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, they stand there and argue with the police officer and get arrested. So I, I, you're not going to convince me that you're going to put rules in place where you have to stand six feet away from someone in a bar and people are actually going to listen to these rules. Right. (laughs) No, I mean, that's a, that's a great, that's a great point. And, you know, I saw something, uh, I think it was on like Instagram or Facebook or whatever, but there, there was this restaurant that opened back up. Uh, it, it was down in Georgia, I believe. And what they did was, um, everybody wore they like this company like bought inner tubes right like swimming pool inner tubes and like they so like they put them around them and you know created like a six feet buffer zone around them and like people were walking through like they it was like an outdoor restaurant so people were walking through this outdoor restaurant and like you know had their drinks and their music's playing and yet they had these like giant inner tubes on that like serviced as their table too you have cup holders in yeah it. i think i saw something either the same one or similar i feel like the one i saw but might have been in like ocean city maryland or something but yeah it was it was like an inner tube table and so yeah it kept you like six feet away from other people but i mean my mind goes <laughs> that people are going to get drunk and start trying to play bumper cars with right <laughs> I tr- like trust a- me. I I've dealt with drunk people enough years in my profession <laughs> that I know this stuff's not going to work. Right. Like imagine coming down the south side on you know like last night Saturday night and watching and seeing like a whole sea of people out there with their bumper cars like going to Jimmy D's. Like it's not happening. I know. And, and, and I I can also tell you with certainty if you get guys drunk in those things and it's like a a inner tube table, they're just going to pee under the. <laughs> They're not going to go use a restroom. I mean, first right. of all, how, how would you even get out of that to use the restroom? But but regardless, <laughs> they're, they're just gonna they're just gonna unzip and go where they're standing because right. uh, nobody's going to see them. So it's uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There's just there's just so much bad that can c- come out of this. I, I don't you know uh, I don't know. It's 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 going to be interesting, but I don't feel like rules are going to be able to be enforced. Uh, I don't feel like people will listen to them, especially after after having a few drinks. Right. So 
you know, we've talked about this, this evolution and the, you know, and, and the effects that gentrification have had on our city. Um, what's like the one thing um, that you feel like Pittsburgh's missing um, that like would give, would give us an edge, you know, over other smaller cities like us? I mean, obviously we're, we're never going to be a New York or an LA or a Dallas, you know, but what, what's one thing do you think is really missing here? Like, you know, some sort of like club or, you know, some sort of, you know, concert venue, but along those lines, what's missing? Well, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tricky question because you also, in order to, to, I mean, I, I feel like it goes so many directions with this answer. Uh, but one thing is anything that you could have, you'd also need to have, um, public public support for too um right. you know I, I would personally i would love to see and i know some places especially in lawrenceville have kind of you know go this route uh you know goldmark is one of them i would love to see more places and and uh, you know cobra lounge does the same thing which is a newer newer venue um round corner cantina which is the same ownership i i believe um but i would love to see more places that that do kind of um kind of funky off the wall music like where people can go and hear music that they're just not hearing on the radio all day where they can support mm -hmm. DJs that are maybe playing some good music that they don't know and um but that's really an issue I feel like there's the actual business owners to support that in Pittsburgh I just wish um that there were more of a more was more of a population that supported that in Pittsburgh because there is right. some other cities I'm familiar with like you know, Tampa and Miami, where I've, I've played a lot in both of those cities. But I would say uh, on a different level, the number one easy answer for me is that I wish we had more waterfront entertainment properties. And it's hard because of our history and uh, we have all these railroad tracks right on the rivers. And, and, you know, if you go down like the Allegheny river, Monongahela river, parts of it, I mean, they're on both sides, both sides of the river railroad tracks. And that makes right. it hard to have businesses right on the river. There's a few places like Hawkborough house that have kind of sort of worked it out. Um, but yeah. I, I really feel like, Going to other cities, uh, Tampa, Miami, but even northern cities like uh, Boston and Baltimore that have waterfront uh, areas in their cities have so many restaurants and bars and nightclubs, even Cleveland, that are right on the water. And I feel like for having three rivers, we actually have so few venues that are right on the water. And I feel like I wish with, with the, all the waterfront property that we have, I wish we had more of that. Right. I mean, that's definitely something that does need address. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it's something that I've always thought has gone to waste here as well. I mean, you know, like you, you pointed out the Hofbrauhaus. house, um, you know, they have that, the, the, like the little outdoor concert venue, like amp, amp, amphitheater thing. Um, but like, I'd never hear I've, and I've lived in Southside now for, you know, a year and a half now. And I never hear about anything going on down there. Like very, like last summer I've, you know, went to, I think it was two events that were down there. Um, one was like a jazz, a jazz band. And, um, the other night was, um, I think it was like an eighties, an eighties night or something. But, um, you know, it's like, we need more of that. And we, and we need, that um that project that's supposedly coming on the North Shore with the 
lagoon and the the hotel thing i don't i don't necessarily know if that's now if that's even going to happen um but it would be interesting to see how that would work out because it, that was going to be like the first like thing of its kind of that we would see here in Pittsburgh that would kind of you know mimic like a Cleveland and Boston approach because I've been to those cities a lot recently like I was just up in Boston uh, in October for my 21st um, and when I was up there 10 years ago for my 11th birthday like the city in 10 years has completely changed in Boston like there is so many new hotels so many new restaurants um, waterfront property up there is skyrocketed in terms of real estate price. Um, and, that, and so it'd be interesting to see how this lagoon thing plays out. And if that's something, if that model can be reciprocated, you know, along the shoreline, you know, with this three rivers that we have and all the land space that we have. Right. And there's just, you know, there's that tiny little bit, you know, cause the trains, uh, until kind of right before downtown, right around the strip district is where they cross the river. So, um, you know, you, you kind of have that little bit of space from like PNC Park around the, the, the corner up there into the Ohio River, where it's like one of the few spaces that is, you know, uninterrupted uh, train space between the, the uh, you know, land and the river and you over Station Square, I feel like would be the perfect place to have a lot of waterfront um property on, on on the water retail space but you have the train tracks over there and they do have the little marina that they built where and and that's in essence what you have to do in pittsburgh is have something where people walk on like a pedestrian bridge over the train tracks and then go back down again that's really the only way you can do it and it's you know i i get that that's part of our our history but it's it's kind of an unfortunate circumstance that we're stuck in because the it really you know my opinion part of the reason we don't have all that waterfront space is the legitimate fact that there are train tracks everywhere along the rivers. Right. And it's just like, you know, it's either too much of a hassle, you know, to, if they're not being used to rip them up and, you know, like build then your structure. And then, you know, obviously like there's probably legality. stuff. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure they probably have to get permission from, um, you know, I don't, I don't even know if it's uh, the, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation that regulates train tracks or, or if some of them are privately owned by some of the actual um, railways. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure obviously they need permission uh, even just to go over the train tracks with, with that. And then you need permission to build on the river. Um, but I just wish, like I said, even in Northern cities, even in Cleveland, Baltimore, Boston, there's a lot of cool riverfront uh, entertainment retail space. And I just wish we had more of that in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I feel like eventually there's going to be somebody that comes along and uh, with an innovative idea. You know, I'm actually kind of sitting here right now as we're talking about it, trying to think of how, if I had money to do it, how I would build a structure with the with the train tracks. And all I'm envisioning right now is like a big building with like a you know like a a tunnel cut underneath of it, like have the train come right underneath the building. But that's like obviously like probably not the greatest idea uh but yeah i mean it's it's definitely something that needs um thought like there needs to be some thought put behind it and i also too i mean it's like i think the one thing that's really missing in pittsburgh and from my point of view is you know we really just need to invest in our um infrastructure like our you know our 
we have a we have a subway and it's like you, like people don't even know i swear that we have the tea unless they live in the south hills or in the city because it only runs to south hills and in the city uh for some reason but it's like you know there's there's things that need tweaked and there's things that need done um that i think will it, it the evolution that we're seeing with our restaurant and bar industry could really take us to a next level but again it all comes back to the community and their support because without the community being behind it it doesn't matter what you build or what you're trying to do if they don't support it it's not going to take off yeah the the tea has always made me laugh in pittsburgh because uh yeah i mean i obviously it would be so much more useful in my opinion uh this is no disrespect to the people of south hills but if it serviced you know and and i'm not saying to take it away from south hills but if it also serviced you know oakland uh squirrel hill Right. you know, out to the east and service really the, the city um, itself. And I understand that, that that's a challenge going through Oakland. You really can't take up street space and go above ground. Um, and, uh, you know, to go below ground would mean ripping up Fifth or Forbes Avenue. Uh, and I know going back as far as when I was in college, there was always discussions of doing it monorail style and almost Chicago style and being above uh, ground and above the roads. But then there's the aesthetic issue. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever make it east. Uh, it would be great if it did. Uh, I have always thought it, it, it's funny downtown that the three T stops downtown that you can walk from one to the other in, in, in about five minutes. And, right. and, I, and I always joke that if this was an actual New York subway train, that it would be in all three downtown T-stops at the same time. <laughs> and and it, just, it just always made me laugh. I'm like, uh, I, I'm literally, it's taking me more time to go down underground and take the T to go three blocks down, you know, Grant Street or Smithfield Street or whatever. Right. It's, it's you know crazy. I do think it's been a positive um, now that they got you know. I thought it was uh, exorbitant the, what they spent on the underwater tunnel, but I do think it's been a positive that they've gotten it over to the North Shore because uh, for game days it is nice that people can park over in Station Square or park downtown. It alleviates some of the parking hassle in the North Shore itself and take it to go to a game or go to. Uh, you know, some years we've taken it for the 4th of July fireworks. We've parked in Station Square um, mm-hmm. and then taken it over to the North Shore to, to write, watch the fireworks and then taking it back to Station Square. So there's there's definitely been, I think, some good value in getting it over to the North Shore. I think that's been been helpful. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to see it go east and into the city itself. But I understand that that, that would be very difficult. And I always think of how crazy it was in New York, whoever built the subway system that had the forethought because that was built in the early 1900s that had the forethought that New York would grow so much that it would be needed because, you know, obviously in modern days, you you couldn't just rip up New York streets and have them closed to build a subway. But it's crazy for those people that don't know this in the 1980s, that's in essence what happened in downtown Pittsburgh. This was not built until the 80s, is that there were literally main roads in downtown Pittsburgh that were just dug up uh, so, so that they could build the subway. So everything the subway goes under was, was dug up in downtown in the 80s. Uh, and that kind of hurt some of the businesses down there. And that's why in the 90s, uh, you know, there's this big renaissance now, but like in the 90s and early 2000s, Things weren't good in downtown business-wise. There were the big, there were the big stores like Macy's and Kaufman's were still around, 
but mm-hmm. there weren't the like small businesses, all the small restaurants now, because the ones that existed in the eighties basically all lost, lost their business and lost their money from them digging up all of downtown. No one wanted to try to go down there and drive and park while they were putting the tea in. So right. uh, that's, that's another, I guess, interesting, interesting part of Pittsburgh history. Yeah. I mean, and that's definitely something that people, you know, still complain about today is, you know, there's, there's never enough parking. There's never enough parking, you know, and, you know, and downtown, like to, if you don't drive downtown consistently to me, it's, you know, I, when I first moved down to the city and I was constantly driving uh, through downtown to get to my, my job. Uh, the first couple of times I was like, God, this is a nightmare. It's especially, especially during, you know, uh, rush hour, it's like gridlock. It's like, you're moving so slow to get through the city. It's like, that's why I started biking everywhere in the city. It's so much easier to get places on a bicycle with all the bike trails we have now. Right. Well, pretty much every road downtown, except for Boulevard of the Allies and Grant Street is one way. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's crazy. And I will say, I know my way downtown well, because I've lived here my whole life, but I mean, a city like New York, in my opinion, which is just a grid, is so much easier if you're not familiar with the city to get around in. Uh, and now with with the bike lanes downtown, there's been, you know, some roads that used to be two ways that are now one way. And, um, you know, I've been, I've been down there times where I've been on like Penn Avenue um, and I'll literally have to drive seven eight blocks to get to a place that's half a block behind me because right <laughs> because there's so many one-way streets and the bike lanes now made made certain roads that were two ways one way and it's uh and and also uh recently some of the places uh, with the bike lanes have um taken away uh, some parking down there too so mm-hmm. it's it's really crazy too from a standpoint of being a dj when you have to unload gear uh, downtown. Uh, most of the hotels have spaces where you can go inside or underground and go to a loading dock. But uh, there are sometimes if there's like a bar nightclub type venue, uh, like I know I played at a wedding at Oliver Twist in December. And I think, um, I don't know if they're still parking in front of Oliver Twist or not, but if there was, it was either completely all taken up or if there wasn't parking there it was like a bike lane and so you know i had to pull in this weird alley across the around the corner that was basically about the width of my my truck um and uh and and unload there and it was it's it's just wild downtown trying to trying to kind of i guess you know function with with the with the craziness that it's the street system down there Right now, does that does that play a factor in terms of like the and this goes back to when you're picking places to perform at, and the you know the influence of gentrification, you know does this play a factor like if you know like uh like I don't know if you're going to the such and such you know bar to perform that night, um and they you know this other place you know hits you up and they're like hey like you know we want you to come down next week and perform uh you know on such and such night. And, but then like, you know, the place, you know, the area and it's like, but like, there's no good place to unload or any of this shit. Like, does any of that play a factor at all? I mean, that might, so for me at least, and I know there are some bars that, that, you know, where DJs have to bring equipment. I mean, for me, pretty much all the bars and nightclubs that I'm playing in have, you know, DJ equipment, have sound systems. So I'm just walking in with my backpack. So it's mm-hmm. not it's not really a big deal. I mean, it is crazy sometimes on weekends, depending on what time I'm starting in the south side. 
I mean, God, I, there have been times where I've been parked eight, nine, ten blocks away from somewhere I'm DJing. But <laughs> it's just I'm just walking with a backpack. So, uh, right. so don't get me started on St. Patrick's Saturday. God, I, I'm probably showing up in the Southside 45 minutes before my gig, um, and and hoping that that's enough time to find a parking <laughs> space and get in. But um, with with uh, with with, uh, you know, mobile events, with weddings and corporate events, you know, where I am, um, you know, bringing in equipment. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really am not saying no to, to a client because I don't like the, the place that they're, uh, you know, have me loading into. I mean, there are some places where I might, might grumble under my breath and not be thrilled about the loading situations. <laughs> Uh, and, and, the, and the downtown ones are the worst. I mean, when yeah. you go to the suburbs, uh, it's always so much easier to load into places because they usually have a door, some exterior door that's right by where you're going to be set up at. But when you're in, in downtown, uh, it's like you go in one side of the building in the basement and then you go across the building and, and then go an elevator. Oh, it's the Renaissance, <laughs> the Renaissance Hotel. They might have stopped this, but you used to have to go down an elevator with your gear where well, you weren't even allowed to go in the elevator you put your gear on it it was one of those uh where the metal doors open in the sidewalk so yeah. like okay. the metal the metal doors open and there's like this like freight elevator that like comes up to the top of the metal door it's not an elevator it's just literally like a, a platform uh it's right. on hydraulics it comes up you put your gear on it they press the button your gear goes down and they close the metal doors then you have to walk down into the basement of the hotel, get your gear off of that, and then take your gear to a regular elevator that goes up to the second floor of the hotel to actually bring it to, to the room you're going to be in. So there, <laughs> there are some crazy, crazy situations with load in the Omni William Penn Hotel, which is actually one of my favorite hotels to play events in. It's gorgeous. Beautiful. But, but Beautiful. The wild thing about their load-in, not only do you have to go up 17 floors in an elevator, but the street that you have to load in, it's on the side of the hotel, not on the um, you know front or back of the hotel. So when you're unloading your car, if you have a cart there, or like I have subwoofers that are on wheels that are on casters, it's a hill. So you can't, there's no way to actually stop this cart. You have to have like a second person hold the cart, uh, which ends up, you know, getting to be eight, 900 pounds by the time it's loaded up. You have to right. have someone hold this cart on a hill or else it just roll down the hill. It's, <laughs> it's, it's wild. These, these downtown load-ins, um, you know, that, that you have to do, but, uh, yeah, it's just, just kind of part of life in the industry. <laughs> and then, you know, you said right now you're currently, well, not right now, but one of the one of the gigs that you have is being the in-game DJ for the Pitt Panthers and the Pittsburgh Steelers. How how is that? I mean, I, I'm sure that that has to be a pretty cool job, and I'm sure you've seen like some pretty cool like moments and and some stuff that you could speak on. Yeah, I mean, it's doing that, especially for the Steelers, um, is has been. On one hand, one of the most fun jobs I've ever had, and on the other hand, the completely one of the most completely stressful jobs I've ever had. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's just it's incredibly stressful, um, uh, yeah, but I love it. I love it. Um, so what's crazy? A lot of people don't know really how much uh, 
goes behind the scenes into to putting on a, the, these shows. So there are around, I believe, 70 people that work on our in-stadium production staff. And mm-hmm. that includes probably about eight to 10 cameramen that are not, not filming anything that goes on to TV, but are just filming what is shown on the in-stadium scoreboard. And, and so the room I'm working in is with all of the people that are running the scoreboard and all the in-stadium production for the in-stadium show. So, right. uh, so we have eight to 10 cameramen. We have three different replay people. When somebody's watching a replay, when you're watching a replay on the big screen, there's literally a person that has a dial and they're literally turning that dial back and forth to make the replay go forward and backward. Um, okay. And because they'll flip to different angles of the replay, that's why we have three replay people because, you know, one will be running one replay and then they'll flip to a different camera angle and the next person sitting next to them is running that replay. Uh, We have two Chiron people that basically any graphics that you see up on the board, any statistics they're they're editing those live you know when it's the end of the first quarter and they show the first quarter statistics well within the last 30 seconds before the quarter end somebody edited those all in photoshop before they went up on the big screen um right. you know when when someone scores a touchdown when james connor has an eight yard touchdown run somebody we don't have you know a uh, hundred different James Conner touchdown runs for each amount of yardage he could get. I mean, somebody makes up this graphic that goes on the screen within the ten seconds after he scores the touchdown, and then they put it up on the screen. Uh, we have a camera director. Uh, we have uh, uh, we have two technical directors that run the the board um, that you know the camera board. We have. Um, uh, let's see, there's a stats guy. And basically what he just does is monitor stats to see if anybody's like breaking a record. Like he doesn't keep stats, but he's constantly watching the stats to see if like a Steeler passed the all time record for most passing yards or receiving yards or, or yards per game, whatever. He's just monitoring stats to see if somebody ever would, would break a statistical record during the game. Uh, there's one person that runs all the LED rails between the upper level and the lower level that just flashes a lot of advertisements, but then they'll also, you know, be different hype things on there and stuff. So, so yeah, it's an incredible PA announcers with me, the, the game day producer who decides everything that's happening. We have two spotters in the room. It is an incredible amount of people, um, that put the show together. There's one guy that puts together the replay or the, uh, not the replay packages, but, uh, but he does the um, uh, highlight packages from the other games. So when you see in the middle of a Steelers game, they're showing you highlights from like the Browns and Bengals game. Somebody literally put this highlight package together while our game was going on and wrote a quick script for it and then gives that script to our PA announcer. And then they showed on the screen. I mean, it's, it's incredible how much behind the scenes is happening. From my standpoint, what I'm, uh, you know, I guess uh, dealing with is that, especially when we're on defense, uh, any any amount of things could happen at in in any given play. So, you know, we have a certain song that we play, obviously for touchdowns. We have songs that we play for turnovers. We have songs that we play for sacks. Uh, we have songs that we play between defensive downs. We have a bank of songs that we play for that are celebration songs if we get a defensive stop. So if we're on defense, 
any amount of things could happen during a play. Like the other team could score a touchdown. We could get a fumble recovery or an interception. We could get a fumble recovery or an interception and score a touchdown. We could get a sack. Like uh, there, there are like seven or eight different scenarios of each play that I have to be ready for pretty much all of those scenarios uh, simultaneously. So it's a lot of, you know, you're reacting to what's happening on the field, but you have to react immediately. Uh, You know, you don't have time for hesitation in your reaction. Um, And sometimes things get tricky. Uh, For instance, now this is something I'm always on my mind, but I kind of, you know, happened, I think my first season there, where we have we have commercials uh, when there are commercials on TV, we usually have things planned in the stadium. So, you know, we're going to have a, a contest, or we're going to give out free hot dogs to a certain row, or we're going to bring out, um, you know, a military veteran and have an on-field ceremony for them. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we'll know going into that uh, break, you know, that's what's going to happen. Well, say there's maybe supposed to be, you know, there's going to be a punt and the network tells us right before that punt, you know, we're going to commercial break here. So we're expecting we're going to have this veteran come out, we're going to play the music bed we use for that. And then all of a sudden it's a fake punt. And it's just like your mind is just thinking about, (laughs) okay, you know, it's time for the veteran recognition. And all of a sudden you're just thrown into a different situation because there's this fake punt instead of a regular punt or or someone fumbles the, the, uh, you know, snap or whatever craziness there is. So you always, it's really, you have to be super sharp mentally and, and always be, and, and that doesn't just go for me. It goes for everybody that works in our room, the, the, the cameramen. Um, you know, you have to be uh, paying attention at, at all times. You cannot take, take your eyes or mind off the game. And I will say my first game working for the Steelers and my first game working for the University of Pittsburgh, I, we have actually have a, like a chair up there because, the, you know, you're there for hours and hours and hours up in the booth. But uh, the first game for both of those teams, I, I would say I stood up like the entire game because I was just <laughs> focused on, on trying to pay attention to everything. And uh, now I'm much better with it. But those first few games I did, I was so focused on just like what happened and what I was supposed to do because of what happened. I could barely tell you a single thing that happened those first few games. Like I, I could probably not even tell you the score because I was just so laser focused on my job within, right. within the game. Yeah. I mean, dude, like that's a, that does sound like you have me like a little stressed out right now. Just like talking about it. Like I just feel like I could feel like there must be like some like tension in that room. You know, it's like, especially when something doesn't go like, like you said, like there's supposed to be a punt and next thing you know, you know, we're faking it and, you know, this outcome happens and, you know, everything is kind of thrown off. So it's like to constantly be on your toes and to constantly be ready. What do you, how do you like, what, what's, what's your setup like? So that way you can just be, you can just go like, where are you guys at in the room? Like, where's this room located? So, so the big, the big thing for me, um, I mean, obviously you're, you're always trying to be as, as fresh as possible. I mean, sometimes it's hard because, uh, I work sometimes Saturday night before, but I try to get as much sleep as possible before a game so that, you know, I can be well rested and be focused. Uh, as far as our setup goes, we are located on the 400 level, which is one of the levels where there are club boxes. And mm-hmm. so 
We are at the very end by the open end of the stadium, kind of on the Carnegie Science Center side. So the Carnegie Science Center would be behind us, you know, outside the stadium. Mm -hmm. And we're basically, if you, if you're at that rotunda where you walk up the rotunda at the end of the stadium, the big, the big giant, you know, circular or, or hexagonal walkways um we're right beside that on the 400 level so we're inside although we do have windows not in the video section but in the audio section which we're right the video section and the audio section are connected and we have clear glass doors in between them but we can actually and usually do close the doors during the game so that because we want to be able to hear outside, make sure the audio sounds right um, and, and hear the crowd's reaction to things. So mm-hmm. the, the audio side is me and the soundboard operator. And then it is also the game day producer, who Chris, who's deciding everything that happens uh, kind of during the game. And then the PA announcer, Larry, and the two spotters. So we're the ones that are on the uh, side that has an open window out to the stadium, but we are inside. So even in the winter, Hey, we get some cold air in there, but it's, there's pretty good heat in there. And then the video people are, are right next to us. Uh, and we're actually right next to the press spot on the other side of us is well, actually first is like the replay booth and then a couple radio booths and then the press box. And then also on our level is where the national uh, and that they're around midfield is where the national TV announcers uh, are seated. And where they see the game from. So that's that's where we are. Uh, as far as what I do to prepare, really, and, and I, I, I make some maybe tweaks every year, but the biggest thing for me about it was was organization and having having the music organized in a way where it was easy to get to to anything, you know. Any song that I needed was easy to get to and I knew where those songs were. You know, when I took over, you know, the guy I took over from, I mean, he kind of had his his own organization and some of it I thought was good and some of it I used and some of it didn't work for me or I didn't think it was the best, you know, organizational concept. So some of it I changed. But for me, um preparation and organization is the biggest thing uh is the biggest aspect of importance there and uh we do before the season we have two or three rehearsals where everybody gets together kind of make sure their equipment's ready working you know all I add when we we do those in late July or early August you know I'll go in and you know, we'll add a bunch of new music that's come out since the previous season, since January or December of the previous year. So uh, we'll, we'll do a lot of prep work for that. Uh, and then, then the day of the game, too, this is another, I guess, crazy thing, is we will get a script. Uh, now, the pit ones are not quite as long as the Steelers ones, the, uh, but, but both are, are pretty intense. But the Steelers script is probably about, I want to say, 30 to 40 pages. And that is only what's happening, not during play, like basically uh, any on-field presentations, any um, promo videos that we're running during the game, any contests that we're having during the game. That, you know, also like the national anthems in there, the coin toss, player intros, everything's there. So that basically runs down from the time the doors open, two hours before the game, until until the last commercial break of the the fourth quarter um and so we we have like a and that that's another crazy thing is we'll have tentative we'll have everything tentatively planned like okay the first commercial break we're gonna do this budweiser promo and this bordis and bordis promo 
but mm-hmm. maybe before the first commercial break, maybe we just scored a touchdown and we want to celebrate and just play kind of happy, you know, music for the fans to celebrate. And so then at that point we scrap those, but, but those are paid for items that the Steelers are paid for that have to happen. So then they end up getting bumped to another commercial break later and we have to kind of put them together like puzzle pieces. And, and that's what Chris, the game day producer decides, but we have to still make those things happen. We're just not making them happen then because, you know, we didn't want to take away at that moment from the celebration. Uh, another thing, you know, an example of pit, we have a karaoke cam where, uh, you know, we usually have kind of a fun poppy song. And at first it's basically players singing it up on the screen or lip syncing it up on the screen. And then they'll go to shots of fans singing the song. Well, maybe we're planning on doing that. And then maybe the other team scores. And this is kind of a fun, happy thing that we do. And maybe we don't want to do that right after the other team scored. So there's also, even though we have a general plan for the game of when, um, what elements will happen, sometimes at the very, I mean, sometimes it's decided less than 10 seconds before an element that it's going to get scrapped and something else is going to happen in its place because of the uh, atmosphere of, of the stadium in that moment. So it right. is, it is like I said, it is something, uh, and I love it, and I, I, I love football, and the Steelers are, are my ultimate favorite sports team, and I went to Pitt. So um, it, it's, it's a lot, lot of fun. I really, really enjoy it, but it is incredibly stressful. Uh, Pitt basketball, I would say Pitt basketball is the least stressful because in basketball, you're only dealing with um, playing music, at least in college basketball, during during timeouts and uh, media breaks. And the media mm-hmm. breaks happen uh, kind of planned. Uh, like in football, whenever they're going to go to a commercial, they'll, they'll decide like a minute or two before, like if there's going to be a punt or there's a third down, they'll be like, yeah, if they, if they don't make this, we're going to commercial. Whereas right. in um, basketball and say it's the same in hockey. I don't do hockey, but it's the same in hockey. It's set where the first time the whistle blows after 16 minutes, there's a commercial break. The first time the whistle blows after 12 minutes, there's a commercial break. So we know First, with certainty when those commercial breaks are coming. Um, and the other fun thing about pit basketball is it's the one sport where I'm actually set up courtside. Um, I mean, I'm about 10 feet off the court. Um, mm-hmm. And and so uh, as opposed to being up in the booth, and I like being up in the booth for, for football, but um, at basketball, it's also cool because, you know, I'm right between the student section and a band. So it gets loud down there and it's, it's a fun atmosphere, uh, especially when it's, when it's a good game and it's, it's a packed game. So uh, it, it's, it's got its uh, you know, own nuances to it, but the basketball is fun. And I would say uh, the basketball is probably a lot less stressful uh, than, than the football, but I, I, I love all of them. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, like the basketball being up on, up on the court, I mean, I feel like being involved with the fans, like basketball is so much more of a personal experience compared to, you know, football. Obviously you can't really have courtside seats like, at, you know, at a Steeler game because of, you know, people getting you know, shoved off on the sidelines and injuries and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I feel like you have a very, like the, all the environments. I mean, you go from clubs to DJs from, well, really you went from, uh, you know, a skating arena to, you know, high school and college parties to, you know, clubs and restaurants. And now it's like you've – I feel like, you know, that's almost like the 
epitome of like the of the Pittsburgh scene is like to be able to DJ for the Steelers and the Panthers, you know, down at Heinz Field. I mean, that has to just be. I mean, when you were sitting back at Central, <laughs> you know, Mr. Walker's class, I, I feel like you could you have like imagined that 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 this is where you would be now. I I I yeah, I never imagined any. I mean, I'd never imagined. A lot of what I did is everywhere I would be from from DJing for the Steelers to, you know, I've done shows on Sirius XM. Um, I mean, I, I never imagined that I'd accomplish a lot of what I did. And, and I'm very thankful and grateful and happy I have. Um, and it's funny because I've had people ask, especially in this industry, you know, where do you and, and I've been having people ask me this for 20 years. And I've, I've had people ask, where do you see yourself in, in 10 years or where do you see yourself in five years? And I've had an interesting thought process on that and that I'm, I'm a very organized and planned out person, but I've never really entered into a situation where I, I'm like, this is where I want to be in five or 10 years because my career path has taken some twists and turns that I, I never expected to take, but, but for the better, um, you know, I never expected, and I love sports, but I never thought I'd enter the world of sports DJing. And over the past year, another thing I've kind of entered into has been DJ education where uh, this year, we'll see what, how many happen, but I mean, I was slated to speak at uh, five or six different conferences, DJ conferences across the country, one in Chicago, uh, one in Hilton Head, uh, one in Las Vegas, which that one's still on, one in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. So I've been scheduled to, to speak all over. I've been doing one-on-one consultations with DJs. And uh, I never imagined DJ education would be something that I would I would end up in. So it's kind of interesting. I, I've just always worked hard and, and I let my career path kind of take, take me where it takes me. And, and I've, mm-hmm. I've enjoyed the opportunities and I feel like there, there will always be more as long as you uh, work hard and, and stay relevant. You know, it's a very important industry to, to stay relevant uh, from, from two standpoints. One, keep, keep putting out contact content and keeping in the public's eye, but also to, you know, like we were talking about earlier, to stay current with, with trends, whether it be how you get your music, whether it be what music you're playing, to not let those trends pass you by, because I've been seeing this my whole life from when I started DJing, and I still see it today, to where you have DJs that hit, you know, their early to mid thirties, or, or if they're still around in their late thirties, early forties, like I am, and they get that mindset of all the current music sucks. I don't like the current music. It sucks. Music was way better when, you know, I was younger. Well, guess what? Like I came up with, you know, Biggie and the Fugees and Lauren Hill and Tupac and NWA, Dr. Dre, Stoop, and everyone that was like my age, you know, now, like everyone that was in their forties and the early to mid nineties were telling me that that music wasn't as good as what they came up on in the eighties. So um, it's just a constant cycle. And I mean, you know, Frank Sinatra hated Elvis and thought Elvis sucked, (laughs) you know? So um, it's just literally every generation is going to always think like their music, be more connected to their music and think their music was, was better than, you know, better than everyone else's, but it's important to, and I, and I might still be, you know, Biggie's still my favorite rapper of all time, but 
at the same time, you know, you have to be cognizant in your professional life to, to, to realize that, you know, I'm DJing for proms and I'm DJing at bars and nightclubs where the kids are, are 21 years old and they weren't even alive when Biggie was rapping. You have to always be cognizant that the music that touched the the younger generations you're playing for was not maybe the same music that most touched you and just be aware of that and keep evolving your your playlist and your set list right so Dave, my last question that i have for you is what advice you know from from your career and from your you know from your life basically do you have for those who may be aspiring to you know get into djing uh producing beats, um, any, anything in those regards, um, what, what advice would you give to somebody that, that's listening to this interview um, that you wish that you had, you know, when you were starting out at, the, at your early age? So I would say I have several pieces of advice I would give. Um, one would be uh, to, to work hard. Def, definitely always, always work hard. I mean, that really applies to anything, but, but work hard at what you do. Uh, try, try to maintain a level of professionalism. You know, I feel like one thing that kills some people in the music world, whether it be DJs, whether it be producers, whether it be rappers, artists, is that they might put out a great product, but when you're dealing with a nightclub owner or a nightclub manager or a promoter or an A&R person, you want to make sure that you come off as, as professionally as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the other two big, big, big ones are uh, one, one to uh, be patient, to, to just have patience. And, uh, you know, I was DJing for six, you know, granted I started when I was 15, but I was DJing for six years before I was really playing in nightclubs. I was DJing for about eight, nine years before I was on the radio. I was, you know, it's been a long career and a lot of what I've accomplished has been a lot of hard work and patience. And I think a lot of people in the industries get frustrated if things don't happen for them immediately, especially in the entertainment industry, they want to blow up immediately as a DJ or as a uh, artist. And they don't want to, they don't realize that, you know, and I'm not saying you can't, some people do, but, but some people work really hard busting their ass for four or five, six years. Um, you know, even if you look at, you know, I mean, I, I knew of Wiz for a long time before, you know, he kind of, went, you know, got as huge as he got. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was just grinding, playing like small shows, uh, you know, like bars and and clubs in the city and, and, you know, not glamorous, but he just worked and worked and worked at, at, at honing his craft and, but also at putting himself out there and and getting more and more people to hear him and be exposed to him. Um, And, you know, I I wasn't particularly close to Wiz, but I I really saw his career path in Pittsburgh and and all the, the, a lot of the, like, you know, background work that went into what he eventually became. And so I can attest to that, you know, both in in the music uh, world as an artist, as well as the DJ world. And the last thing I would say is an important, is very, very important is to network. And uh, it's definitely an industry, whether you're an artist, a producer, or a DJ, where you want to know, know people and, right. you know, develop, develop relationships, develop friendships. I mean, there are people, there are people I've known and, and been friends with, you know, genuine friends with for, for 10, 15 years, and maybe 
nothing's ever like they've never, you know, hooked me up with a gig or something. And then all of a sudden, 10 or 15 years into our relationship, something like major pops up and they're like, Hey Dave, do you want to do this? You know? Right. And, and, and the other important thing with, with networking is, is to, is to be genuine and develop genuine relationships with people. I'm not, I'm not friends with people because I think they could do something for me. I, I'm friends with people because I genuinely like them and I genuinely care about them. So, so make those relationships genuine. Don't just, you know, hit up someone and for, for two days, try to be cool with them on social media and ask them how they're doing. And then the third day, ask them for a gig, you know, just right. kind of let that relationship develop naturally and, and be a friend. And, and, and don't, when you're developing business relationships with people, don't always expect it to be one-sided. Don't, don't always think of, of what the other person can do for you. Also think of what you can do for that other person. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's very important uh, in this industry. So, so networking, hard work, uh, you know, patience and, and professionalism are the, the big things that I would say that, that I would make sure to focus on if I were, you know, uh, younger. And I, and I guess God, believe it, believe it in yourself, because I, I will say this, like I said, I could never believe I did most of the things that I did. And, and maybe, maybe if I could have thought this was a possibility, uh, further down the road, um, you know, may, maybe I'd have gotten out of Pittsburgh, you know, earlier, started doing bigger things sooner, but I, I just never even thought a lot of the things that have happened with me and to me would, would have ever even, even been on the table. So definitely right. believe in yourself as well. Well, Dave, uh, I appreciate you for taking the time out on this Memorial Day weekend to stop by the stoop, uh, even though it was virtually. Um, it's a, it's been an honor to have you on the show, man. Uh, I thank you for your time. Um, yeah, please give yourself a shout out. That way people know where to find you know your content and to learn and stay in touch with you. Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at DJ Digital Dave one uh, you can get at my mix cloud, which is where I have tons and tons of tons of, of mixtapes and, and radio mixes and live DJ sets that I put together. And that is mixcloud.com backslash DJ Digital Dave. That's mixcloud.com backslash DJ Digital Dave. And uh, also on Friday, June the 12th at 9 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to be on Sirius XM Fly. Uh, from from nine to ten Eastern, and they have a Friday fly ride, which is basically a live DJ mix one Friday uh, or every Friday. But there's a different DJ every Friday, so it's kind of just a, a rotation of a lot of DJs that that do an hour long live mix. So if you have Sirius XM on June twelfth, that's a Friday night at nine p.m. Eastern, I will be on there on Sirius XM Fly. You can check that out as well. Awesome, man. Thank you. And thank you again for stopping by. Uh, looking forward to, you know, hopefully getting you to, to come down here in person uh, once everything uh, clears up and uh, once you got some time in your schedule. Um, it's been an honor, man. Thank you. For sure. Would love to. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Uh, this is Meet from Stoop Kids 412 uh, signing off with DJ Digital Dave. Hope everybody has a great Memorial Day weekend. Stoop Kids 412 Stoop Kids 412